Well, church, today we are continuing in our Epiphany sermon series entitled Prove It, where we are considering the ways in which Jesus has proven that He is indeed who the Scriptures claim that He is. Epiphany is a season that's all about Jesus being revealed or made known throughout the world. But in a world that is at least currently dominated by fake news, how is it that we know that what has been revealed about Jesus is actually true? How do we know that what the prophets and the apostles have said about Jesus is in fact reality and not some ancient Middle Eastern version of QAnon craziness, right? How do we know that Jesus is who he said he is? How can we prove it? To answer that question, I want to point you this morning to a very old proverbial saying that you may have heard of before, which states that the proof is in the pudding. Anyone ever heard that one before? The proof is in the pudding. It's a bit of an odd saying if you think about it. And the reason that it's an odd saying is because the proof is in the pudding is actually a relatively new twist on a relatively old proverb. The original version of this proverb states that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And what that expression means is that the best way to find out if something is, is good, if it is, or if it's not good, if it's, if it's right or if it's not right, if it's true or if it's not true, is to test it for yourself. If you want to know whether the food is good or not, you have to actually taste the food. Try it out for yourself. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And the reason that I bring that up this morning is because I believe that that this proverb actually helps us to answer our question this morning of how can we prove that Jesus is actually who he said he was and who others said he was. The proof is in the pudding. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them with me to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. And let's consider together how the experiencing of Jesus' words helps us to prove his identity. Now this passage, uh, it picks up, as Teresa just mentioned, at the very end of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just given what is widely considered to be his most famous teaching in all of the scriptures. And at the end of his sermon, what we read in verse 28 is that when Jesus finished saying these things, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. The end of his sermon, the people who heard it were amazed. And this wasn't just a one-time event for Jesus. This was actually an ever-repeating pattern. In Matthew chapter 13, after Jesus had been teaching in his hometown, we read that the people were astonished at his words. In Matthew chapter 19, after Jesus had had a conversation with a rich young ruler about how to get into heaven, we're told that his disciples were greatly astonished at what he had to say. In Matthew chapter 22, after Jesus had explained what life would be like in the resurrection, we're told that when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. In Mark chapter 1, there's an account of Jesus teaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath. And the crowd that was there was astonished at his words. 
In Luke chapter 24, two disciples uh, described that their hearts were burning within them as Jesus spoke to them. Over and over and over again, this happens. With complete strangers on the street that he had never met before. To the congregations to which he preached to on the various synagogues. To his closest disciples and friends. Not just one person, but all who heard him. Not just on one occasion, but over and over and over again. He constantly amazed people with his words. And in each and every occasion, what amazed the people about his words weren't his well-crafted arguments or his clever analogies or his on-point sermon illustrations, although I'm sure those were all great. What impressed the people wasn't the creativity of his parables or his deep knowledge and insight regarding the scriptures. Those are the types of things that impress us about the great speakers that we hear today. But that wasn't what impressed Jesus's audience. What astonished them was something different entirely. Look with me again in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and then in 29. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority. There was a power and a weightiness. And there was clout to Jesus' words that was unlike anything they had ever heard before. And it remains unlike anything anyone has ever heard since then. And and, and this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. The authority of Jesus' words. And there's two main ways that I want to highlight the authority of Jesus' words this morning that made him so unique in all of history. What I want us to consider is where Jesus' words pointed and what Jesus' words produced. Where his words pointed and what his words produced. So first, where Jesus' words pointed. If you noticed... But when the scriptures indicated that the crowds were amazed at the authority of Jesus' teaching, a part of their amazement was at the authority of his words in comparison to the words of their scribes. It said, uh, Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So that Jesus taught us one who had his authority, not as their scribes. Now, to understand the significance of that statement, you have to understand the significance of the Jewish scribes. For throughout the Gospels, the scribes are mentioned in connection with the chief priests and the Pharisees almost 40 different times. They were the scholars and the authorized teachers of the scriptures for the Jewish faith. They were also the custodians of Jewish laws and traditions. And as a result, they were used to speaking with authority. By virtue of their education and their training, and by virtue of their office as scribes, what they said went. If they made a decision about an interpretation of Scripture or a ruling regarding the law, it was accepted. These were men of great honor who spoke with the highest level of authority known in the Jewish world. These men, the scribes, spoke with great authority. But when Jesus showed up onto the scene and began teaching the scriptures and interpreting the law, it was a whole other matter entirely. In comparison to Jesus, 
It was as if the scribes had no authority at all. What's going on here? What is it that was so unique about Jesus' words in comparison to the scribes? One of the most significant differences regarding the authority of Jesus' teaching was in where his words pointed. You see, the scribes would point to the scriptures or to the Jewish laws. And they would make interpretations about them and determine rulings based on them. But their words were always pointing towards another ultimate source. We find an example of how this worked with the Apostle Paul, who before he became the great evangelist of the church was previously a very high-ranking Pharisee. And this is how he had operated as a Pharisee and how he continued to operate as an apostle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells the church that what I received, I passed on to you as a matter of first importance. And so here, even the great apostle Paul places his authority in something he himself had received. It was exterior to himself. And so a scribe might say something like, according to the law, or thus says the Lord according to the scriptures, or something like that. But it was always an authority that depended upon a greater authority. They were always pointing to the law or to the scriptures or to tradition. Their authority was theirs by proxy or or by position, but it wasn't inherent to them. It was sourced in something or someone else. But when Jesus came on to the scene, he spoke in an entirely different way. In his teaching, Jesus didn't point to any outside authority unless he was doing so to correct it. Instead, Jesus pointed to himself, not just as an authority, lit like one among many, but literally as the authority, all to his own. And we see this over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus would regularly use phrases like, you have heard it said, do not murder, do not commit adultery, uh, an eye for an eye, or something like that, describing the various laws and commandments of God along with man's interpretation of them. You have heard it said, but then Jesus would say, but I say to you, and then he totally reinterprets their understanding of the law, deepening and broadening its application, not based on any other scripture or any other tradition, but out of his own authority. This was Jesus' practice throughout his life and his ministry. When he first came onto the scene, he called people to repentance, declaring that he knew what they needed for their lives. He called people to follow him, directing them to orient their lives towards him. In his teaching, he instructed everyone, from the least to the greatest, on issues of morality and spirituality and eternality, never pointing to other sources of authority like the prophets of old or the scribes of the present, but instead always pointing to himself as the source of all authority. And this manner of speaking was so unique, so unheard of, so audacious, that it caused people to be astounded and astonished and amazed. Who is this man? They would often ask. Where did he get this teaching? They would wonder. He had never experienced anything like it. 
By speaking in this way, Jesus was claiming that he was greater than their scribes. And he was claiming that he was greater than their prophets. He, he said as much in Matthew chapter 12 where he claims that he's greater than Jonah, their great prophet. That he was greater than Solomon, their greatest king. Everyone else pointed to an authority beyond themselves. But Jesus claimed an authority all of his own. And that made him singularly unique in his day. It continues to make him singularly unique in ours as well. For it wasn't just the prophets and the scribes and the Pharisees of biblical times that led their inheritance based on an authority not their own. The leaders of every major world religion throughout history have done the same. They all point to some ultimate authority or some ultimate teaching that is beyond themselves. Only Jesus in all of history actually points to himself. Tim Keller describes it this way. He said that the founders of all other religions said basically this. I am a prophet. Come to help you find God. But Jesus is the only one who came and said, I am God who has come to find you. I mean, think about it in Islam. Muhammad acknowledged that he was only a man and he pointed to Allah and to, and to Allah's law. In Buddhism, Buddha never claimed to be able to save anyone. Instead, he pointed them to the noble eightfold path for their salvation. In Hinduism, salvation is attained through a person's reincarnation after reincarnation, trying over and over again until they eventually get it right. They're all pointing to some, some other authority, some other teaching, some other work that must be done. Yet in contrast to all of these, Jesus points not to an authority outside of himself, but he instead points directly at himself. The others all say, this is the way that you need to go. But Jesus says, I am the way that you need to go. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's all about me, Jesus claimed. It's an authority like no other authority. And this is why people marveled at his words. Because in a way that no one else in all of history has ever done, Jesus spoke with an authority that was inherent to himself. It's where his words pointed. The result of all that is it leads you to have to deal with the person of Jesus and with his words. His claims don't leave room for any neutral response to him. Jesus' words are either true, and he's the greatest authority that's ever walked this earth, making him the Lord of all, or they're not true. And he's either a liar or a lunatic, not worth following in the least. There really are no other options. Jesus can't just be a, a nice guy or a good teacher or a helpful example. His claims do not leave us that option because his words point to himself. That's where his words point. Second, we have to consider what his words produced. And as we read through the Gospels in particular and the Scriptures in general, what we see is that the astonishment that the crowds had with where Jesus' words pointed that were soon accompanied with the astonishment of the crowds at the effect of His words' power. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus' words having a power to heal sickness, a power to calm storms, 
to cast out demons, to forgive sins, to open the eyes of the blind, to restore the legs of the lame, to allow a man to walk on water, to to raise the dead to life. These were all done at the command of his word. Over and over and over again, these things happened when Jesus spoke and it left people astonished. If we look even broader than the Gospels, the power of his word becomes even more amazing. Because at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we are told that all things were made through Jesus. And that without him, nothing was made that has been made. Which means that when we, when we look back at our Old Testament reading from Genesis this morning, and consider the very foundations of our creation, of the universe, of our world, of all of life, It all exists because of the command of his voice, because of the authority and the power of his word. Jesus spoke creation itself into existence. Everything out of nothing. Into the darkness, Jesus said, let there be light. And there was light. Into the lifeless earth, Jesus said, let there be vegetation and animals to fill the earth and the sea and the sky. And there were. To crown his creation, God said, let us make man in our image. So Jesus created us. In his image, he created you and me. Male and female, he created us. All with the power of his word. And it was so very good. I want you to think about that for just a moment and ponder the reality that you have a God who is so powerful that with a word from his lips, he speaks creation into existence. You have a God who is so powerful that when Satan led the whole world astray in sin and marred God's good creation by merely speaking a word, Jesus calls it back into working order. You have a God who is so powerful that when sin gets its final say and brings us down into the grave with one small command, He calls us back to life. Lazarus, come out, Jesus said. And the dead man came back to life. Can you even begin to imagine What this means for you. This is really true. If Jesus is really who he claims to be and his words really have the authority that amazed those who heard them and saw their effects, then as a result, Jesus' words can give peace to your anxious heart no matter how big your worry might be. He can give hope to your hopeless soul no matter how desperate your circumstances may be. He can bring dignity to the undignified no matter how soiled a life may be. He can bring respect to the disrespected, forgiveness to the guilty, purity to the defiled, honor to the one who has been shamed. He can bring flesh to the heart of stone, love into a loveless marriage, faith to a wandering and lost child, wholeness to one who is radically broken, With a single word, he can bring life to that which is dead. Emotionally or spiritually, physically. 
As the creator and sustainer of all things, Jesus has the power and the authority to make everything new and right again. And in his goodness, he has promised that one day he will. Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus will one day say. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things will have passed away. All at Jesus' command. That is what his word produces. And church, if you have any doubt as to whether or not that is true, that Jesus' words have a unique authority in where they point and what they produce, And that his authority, the authority of his word, has major implications for our lives. If you have any of doubt whether whether any of that is true, I would simply say to you that the proof is in the pudding. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you want to know whether God's word is authoritative and powerful and good and true, you have to experience it for yourself. There really is no other way. God has said so. He said as much in the scriptures. He invites you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Come and experience it for yourself. Engage with his word spoken to you. Because there really is no other way to understand or to comprehend how it is more blessed to give than to receive until you experience that for yourself by doing it. There's no way to understand why it is better to love your enemies and to pray for them rather than to hate them until you experience the power of doing it. The idea that you have to die to yourself in order to truly live makes absolutely no sense Until you do it. That one in particular is foolishness to our world. Where the highest value held before you is your self-actualization. And that you living your authentic life cannot be spoken against. The word of God tells us not not to try to preserve our life. But to lose our very life. To die to our old self. In order that we might live not our authentic life but Christ's life in us. That is where life that's truly life is ultimately found. It makes no sense until you experience it and do it. The proof is in the pudding. And when you allow yourself to experience the word of God, what you will discover is that God's word remains the most powerful and authoritative word that there is. It is living and it is active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As you read it, it will dissect you. It will expose you. But it will lead you into a life that is truly life. Where there is hope, and there is life, and there is joy forevermore. It's all available to you. By the word of God. Through the living word of Christ. Proof is in the pudding. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you will do that, it will be 
unto God's glory and unto your great good. Now and forevermore. Amen.